We are going to continue this morning with our new study of the parables of Jesus. Um, as we said last week, this is something I've been wanting to do for quite a while, and that is to go through the parables of Jesus. There is, of all the communicators that's ever lived in history, uh, there's never been a better communicator than Jesus Christ, and he taught in parables. And as we saw last week, one of the purposes of parables is to reveal truth to people who know God, who know, who are, who, who, who have the Spirit of God inside of them. One of the purposes of the parables is not to hide it from you, but it is to reveal it to us. And so uh, we're excited about this study because we believe there's some truth in these parables uh, that are going to be revealed to us. The parable that we're talking about today is the parable of the unclean spirit. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 to 45. If you got your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to that. There is a companion uh, scripture. Most of the parables are in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, this same parable is told in Luke 11, 24 to 26. But we're going to be looking, for the most part, at Matthew 12, 43 to 45. So let's read it. Of course, this is Jesus talking, and he says this. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person... It passes through waterless places seeking rest, but it finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Now this is a one of Jesus' most fascinating uh, parables. And, and what makes this parable fascinating to me is that in almost all the other parables, the main character is either a person or maybe a, a, a fig tree or something like this. But in this parable, the main character is a demon, which is very unusual. You don't see that very much in his parables. But that's one of the things I think that makes it fascinating. Now... I want to start here. I think we can all agree that we are at a low point in our country when it comes to morality. Does everybody kind of agree with that? Now, not to say it can't go lower. In fact, I think it will go lower. I don't think we're as low as we can go. Um, but the fact is, if you go back through our history, we are about as, as low, we're at a low point uh, when it comes to the practice of morality. And in fact, other than in our churches, you don't hear much about morality anymore, do you? Turn on the TV, movies, television shows, news, things like that. You don't hear really much about morality at all. Now, from time to time in our country, uh, political movements will spring up and try to call people back to morality. One of the, uh, I don't know, I, mean, some, I know some of y'all in here are pretty young and others of you are like me, but most of you can remember back in the... Uh, in the 80s, there was a group called The Moral Majority by Jerry Falwell. Everybody kind of remember that? And it was, a, it was a political movement, and they would lobby politicians. They would do things like that to try to legislate uh, morality. Yet, today's politicians, have you noticed, they don't seem to be interested in that at all. You, they're not interested in legislating morality. In fact, they're going uh, kind of completely the other way. So the question is, who's going to fill this void when it comes to talking about morality? Who's going who's gonna to start the conversation? Well, the fact is it's left to us. It's left to the, to the churches of America to talk about morality, to teach morality, 
and to call people back to morality. And, and a lot of churches are doing that. Uh, you know, we, if you come to this church from uh, Sunday after Sunday, from time to time, you're going to hear a lesson calling people back or a, a message calling people back to morality. Now, some churches are going even further. There are Christian organizations out there that are kind of doing what the moral majority did. They're spending their money and their time trying to lobby politicians, trying to get laws passed to legislate uh, morality and bring America back to the morality of its past. Now, I want to say right here at the start, so there's no misunderstanding, I like morality, okay? I'm not against morality. I, I don't want there to be any misunderstanding here. I agree that we should have ethics. We should have morals. We should have standards, especially the standards and ethics and morals that are taught in the Word of God, okay? That, I'm not against that at all. But, but our parable today has something to say about morality, Okay? See, morality by itself can in many ways be more dangerous than immorality. Now, that may shock some of you. Let me, in fact, let me say it again. Morality in some ways can be more dangerous than immorality. Now, it shouldn't shock you even though that, that statement might because that's exactly what our parable today is all about. That is exactly the lesson that Jesus wants to teach us today with the parable of the unclean spirit. Now let's, before we get into this parable, we always look at things in context, right? I, I've, I've taught that for years. You don't just go into the Bible, pull out a passage, and, and, and build a doctrine on it. You have to look at things in context. So let's look at the context of who Jesus is talking to. Jesus, when he's teaching this parable, he's talking to the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees were the moral majority of Palestine, okay? 2,000 years ago, they were the moral majority. There was no group that had higher morals, higher standards, higher ethics than the Pharisees. When it, when it came to people that you would say, well, they're, they're a moral people, you would have pointed to the Pharisees, okay? They, as I said, they were the moral majority of their time. Yet in the midst of this moral lifestyle... They're in, they're in fact rejecting God himself who is standing in front of them in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, there's not a more moral people than them, yet when God himself walks up to them, they reject him. Now, were they moral? Absolutely. But they were on a moral path to hell. Okay, they, they were on a moral path to destruction. Morality for them was not enough. And in fact, here's one of the things you find out about the Pharisees. The more they committed themselves to morals, the more, the more they committed themselves to standards and ethics, the more they actually cemented their own judgment. It, it was like, and you may say, well, why is that? Because the more they cleaned up their lives on the outside, the more they convinced themselves they were okay. Let me say that again. The cleaner they got on the outside, the better they looked on the outside, the more they convinced themselves, well, we're okay. See, they were moral people. They were ethical people. They would say, we're, we're good people. So when somebody came along preaching the message of sin, they, they weren't interested in that. See, somebody came, John the Baptist came preaching, and they said, oh, he's preaching to them. He's preaching to the tax collectors, to the prostitutes, to the, to the robbers and the thieves. He doesn't mean us. We're good people. We're moral people. We're ethical people. 
See, they saw the message of sin for someone else. So the, the more moral they got, the better they got on the outside, the more they actually cemented their own, their own judgment. This, listen to what Jesus says to them in Matthew 23, 26. This is Jesus talking to the Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and sin. See, the cleaner they got, the better they looked on the outside, they, they looked great to other men. They, we would have pointed at them and said, you want to go talk to a moral man? Go talk to that Pharisee. And Jesus said, but on the inside, you're full of rottenness and stinking and death and sin. You look good outside, but on the inside, you got a, you got a problem. Now, the Pharisees should be a lesson for all of us. There's never been a more group, there's never been a group that was more adamantly committed to a moral code, and yet there has never been a group so far from God. The more they committed themselves to the law, the further they moved away from God. The more they committed themselves to morals and ethics, the further and further and further they got away from God. And under this illusion of their own self-righteousness, they became unreachable. Do you understand? Go back and read the Bible. Jesus had little trouble reaching prostitutes. He had little trouble reaching robbers and thieves and tax collectors. It, it, isn't that true? Man, they flocked to Jesus. Nicodemus is climbing a tree to, 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 to get a glimpse of the man. Prostitutes are falling on their knees and, and, and washing his feet with their own hair. He had no trouble reaching those people. He had no trouble reaching the sinners, the, the bad people. That, that wasn't the issue at all. But it was almost impossible for him to reach the Pharisees. It was almost impossible for him to reach these moral, ethical people who were under the illusion that everything was okay between them and God. You see, when they, because they didn't recognize their sin, they couldn't see their need for a Savior. See, if you don't see yourself as a sinner, then you'll, you'll never see your need for a Savior. That was their problem. And that's why morality for them was so, so very dangerous. In fact, that is always the danger of morality. It creates an illusion of safety. It, it creates an illusion of righteousness. I'm okay. Look at me. I'm not breaking any laws. I'm, I'm being faithful to my wife. I'm, 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 a, I'm a good person. I'm a good man. See, the moral person thinks they're safe when in fact they may be in the greatest danger of them all. Now, in chapter 1 through 10 of Matthew's gospel, and I want to bring us back. This, this is the people that Jesus is talking to. Now, let's come back to Matthew's gospel. If you go back and read the gospel as a whole, in, in chapters 1 through 10, Matthew is introducing Jesus as the Son of God. And he, he talks about him, where he came from. He introduces him through some of his miracles and things like that. But as you come to chapters 11, 12 of Matthew, Matthew, in those two chapters, is chronicling the rejection of Jesus by the Pharisees. If you go back and read those two chapters in a whole, you'll see this, that's what it's all about. The Pharisees are rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. Now, look at verses... Uh, tw in fact, I want to show you what happens a little bit before we get down to our, um, our parable. 
In chapter 12, verses 22 to 24, it says this, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the Son of David? In other words, can this be the Savior? Can this be the Messiah? But when the Pharisees, the moral people, heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man can cast out demons. You see, they said, oh, he, he does that, but it's not by the power of God. It's by the power of Satan. So not only are they rejecting him as the Messiah, they're, they're actually ascribing him to Satan. They're saying that Satan is his father, that Satan is his master. And Jesus tells them, because you did that, you cannot be forgiven. You, you cannot. Then he pronounces a judgment on them. Look at verses 41 to 42. Now, by the way, this is right before our parable. He says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, Pharisees, something. He says this, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south, or the queen of Sheba, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So Jesus has been introduced to the Pharisees, this moral majority of their generation. They have rejected him, not only rejected him uh, uh, just as the Son of God, rejected him even as a good man, but they have ascribed him to Satan. So, so, so Jesus pronounces a judgment against them. And he says, the, the people of Nineveh, and by the way, y'all know the people of Nineveh is the people that Jonah, right, went to preach, and they repented. And he said, they'll rise up and condemn you because they repented at the preaching of a man. But there's something greater than a man standing in front of you and you don't see it. And you're going to be condemned and judged for what you're doing. So Jesus has given them a message of judgment, a message of condemnation. And to bring it to a climax, he tells a parable. Okay, And the parable that he tells is the parable of the unclean spirit. Now let's read this again now that we know it's in context. Jesus said this. All right, let me, let me explain this with a parable, he says. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. And then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Now, the meaning of this parable can be summed up pretty simply and pretty easily. It is meant to warn us, you and I, and, and everybody that was to come down throughout the ages, not to listen to the religion of the Pharisees, not to, to listen to a religion of moralists, but to come to Jesus Christ. And there is a huge difference between the two. On one side, you got morality. On the other side, you got Jesus. On one side, you got reformation. On the other side, you got Jesus, right? See, on the one hand, you have people who are reforming themselves, making themselves act better, making themselves look better. On the other hand, you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, these are the two things we need to pull out of this parable. This is the differences that he's going to show us. The difference between relationship, between knowing Jesus, and the difference between morality or, or reformation, so to speak. 
Now, to help illustrate what we're going to see in the parable of the unclean spirit, I want to look at another of Jesus' parables very quickly. And this is a parable that we all know. Probably if I ask you this morning to name five parables, this is probably one of the parables that you would name. And this is a parable about two men who go into the church to pray. One of them is a moral man, and the other of those is an immoral man. This, of course, is the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. It's found in Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. Let's read this one. Jesus, he also told this parable, talking about Jesus, to some, now watch what he said, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this, God, I thank you that I'm not like them. I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. I'm faithful to my wife. I'm not like that tax collector. See that tax collector over there, God? See that guy? I ain't like him. I'm not a sinner. I'm clean. I'm good. In fact, God, I fast twice a week and I tithe to my church. That's how good I am. Thank you, God, that I'm not like that man. And then, see, this is the typical prayer of a moralist. Thank you, God, that you've made me a good man. Thank you, God, that you've blessed me. Thank you, God, that you've given me and I'm not like him or her. Thank you that I'm a good person. See, that's what a moralist does. He checks in with God every now and again just so God knows, hey, I'm still holy. I'm still, do I'm still doing good. Are you noticing? And on the other side of the building... There's a tax collector standing there, a sinner. And Jesus said this, but the tax collector standing far off, he wouldn't even mingle with the other people. He was so embarrassed to be there, so unworthy, felt ashamed to even be in that place. And he's off to the side somewhere. And it says he wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, that man, talking about the tax collector, went home justified. By the way, guys, that word justified means made right before God. That man was right before God rather than the other. You see, morality in and of itself can be a damning thing. See, you'd be better off to be immoral and face the reality of, the sin, of your sin and the fact that you need a Savior than to live under this illusion that because you live under some kind of moral code, you're okay with God. You'd be better off to be the tax collector. You'd be better off to be a, an immoral person and at least recognize the reality of your sin so that all you can say is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That, you'd be better off than to be some moral, ethical person who lives under some moral code and says, look at me, I'm okay. See, that's the lesson from that parable. Luke 18, 14, at the end of that parable, Jesus says this, For everyone who exalts himself is going to be humble, but everyone who humbles himself before God will be exalted. You see, the message that we have is two choices. You can trust in yourself and in your own behavior and in your own morals and in your own ethics and your own standards. That's called reformation. Or you can put all of your trust in one man, Jesus Christ, and that's a relationship. That's the line. Trust in yourself, trust in Jesus. Those are your two choices. 
Okay, that's the, that's the message of that parable. You see, you can recognize your sin, humble yourself before God, rely on a relationship with Jesus Christ, and you can be justified or made right. Or you can rely on your own morality, your own reformation, and be forever condemned. That's the lesson of that parable of the, of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Now, with that said, let's go back to the parable of the unclean spirit. And as I said earlier, this is one of the most fascinating parables I think that Jesus ever taught. And, and as I said earlier, what makes it fascinating to me is the main character is a demon, which I would have never thought that Jesus would do, but here it is. Look at verse 43. Let's walk down through it to see what Jesus is saying. Verse 43, Jesus said this. Now remember, he's telling the Pharisees this immediately after he's basically condemned them and said the, 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 the men of Nineveh and the people of the Queen of Sheba will rise up and condemn you for a greater than Jonah and a greater than Solomon is here. And he says, let me tell you a parable. Here's the first verse of that parable. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person... It passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Now, the phrase unclean spirit, we should all know, is used very often in the New Testament to refer to, to demons. Now, demons, of course, are fallen angels who do the work of Satan. Now, this particular demon has been living inside of a person. He's been dwelling inside of a person, but he's left that person. Now, we are not told how he left. We're not told why he left. Okay, Jesus, does, evidently that's not important to the, to the story. Okay, was he cast out of the person? Did he leave for some other reason? We got no idea. That's not important. Because uh, if it was important, Jesus would have, Jesus would have told us. So this, this, this demon has been living in a man or some person, and it leaves. Okay, and then Jesus said this, it walks through dry places. Now, why does Jesus give us the imagery of, these, of a dry, barren desert? No clue. Now, let me stop here. Remember, in an allegory, I said this last week, in an allegory like the visions of Daniel or the visions of John in Revelation, every symbol has a meaning. But in a parable, that's not true. You, you can't look at a parable and say, oh, I wonder what the meaning of the desert is. That's not the point. The point is, what is the meaning of the parable as a whole? You can't reach into a parable and pull out every little thing and try to make it mean something. You'll just get yourself in trouble. The fact is, we don't know why Jesus says he walks through dry and barren places. We, we can't make too, too much out of it. What we do know is that that demon is restless. Go back to that verse. It passes through waterless places seeking what? Rest. It means he's restless. It, it can't find rest. Um, it's restless until it can find a place back in a human life. It's looking for a human to reside in. It, it's almost as if it needs a place to work, to, to fulfill its purpose. And it's not, it's not at home outside of a human. It's looking for a human being to go back into. Now, in the parable, it can't find one. It, it's walking, it's looking, it's walking, it's looking and it can't find one. Then you come to verse 44, and Jesus said this, Then it says, the demon, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Now, so the demon decides, you know what, I can't find another human being to go into. I'm going to go back to the man or the woman that I left. So it goes back to that person, and when it gets there, Jesus says, 
it finds that house or that human empty, swept, and put in order. In other words, the demon makes this discovery. Evidently, this person has gone through some kind of moral reformation. In some way, this human has cleaned up their act. Now listen to me, folks. Do you understand men and women can do that? Right? For various reasons, you can take an immoral person and they can clean up their act. Right? They, they may be responding to the fear of prison. Man, if I don't get my act cleaned up, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to prison. Or, or maybe they think, you know, if I don't do something different with my life, I'm going to die. Maybe it's pressure from people they love. Maybe somebody does an intervention on them and says, man, we, you know, you got to go to this clinic and get cleaned up. Maybe they become religious. Maybe they become a Muslim. Maybe they become a Hindu. Maybe they become whatever. They get involved in church. And they, and they clean themselves up. They, they, they get around other people who have living by this moral code. And they think, man, I, I can do that. For whatever reason, human beings can straighten themselves out. We see it all the time. Alcoholics get sober. Drug addicts get clean. Prostitutes stop selling their bodies. Criminals go straight. See, there is an ability in mankind to reform themselves. And I underline that word, reform. They can clean themselves up in some form or fashion. But what we do know about this person, the demon has come back to this person, and they're clean. It's swept. It, it's, it's put in order. They've undergone some moral reformation, but what we do know is that person is not saved. In 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 16, Paul says this, What fellowship has light with darkness? What what accord or agreement has Christ with Baal? Are we not the temples of the Holy Spirit? See, the Bible is very clear. The Holy Spirit and a demon cannot dwell in the same body. The Holy Spirit, the, the spirit of light and the spirit of darkness cannot dwell in the same, in the same person. That's, that's impossible. James says it this way in 3.11, Does a spring pour forth both fresh water and salt water? What's the answer to that? No, it's, it's one or the other. It can't do both. The idea is you can't have that where the Spirit of God dwells, you can't have uh, the spirit of darkness. So when the demon comes back to this person, th- this person has undergone some kind of moral reformation. They've cleaned up their life. But what we do know is they're not saved, okay? The key to understanding this parable is one word, and you, if you've got your Bibles open, you need to circle that word, and that word is empty. When the demon comes back to the person, they find that house swept, all the immoral behavior has been put aside, it's in order, they're living, a, 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 they're living according to some standard, some moral code, but the house is what? It's empty. It is absolutely empty. You see, a moral reformation has taken place. The person's house has been swept. It's, in, it's been put in order. But it is not filled with the Spirit of Christ. It is not filled with the Spirit of God. It is an empty house. And folks, listen to me. That is as dangerous as it gets. That is as dangerous as it gets. See, the empty house speaks of the spiritual vacuum that's created when people get moral, but they don't know Jesus. And the message of Jesus' parable today is very clear. A moral house devoid of the Spirit of Christ is going to leave you open to a worse problem than the one that you started with. 
Let me say that again. The, the message of this parable is pretty clear. So it's really, to be honest with you, it's one that's hard for us to hear. But if you build you a moral house, a house of morality, you clean your house up, you're a good person, an ethical person, a moral person, you live according to some standards, but you don't fill that house with Jesus Christ, you are leaving yourself in a worse place than the one that you started in. Now, we ask the question, now wait a minute, Derek, how can it be worse to be a moral person than an immoral person? That, that just, for some of us, that makes no sense. Isn't it better for a person to get moral, even if they don't know Jesus? See, the, but Jesus is telling us no. Why? Because the sinful person who is aware of their sinfulness at least has an awareness of the evil in their life. They have an awareness of the sin, the, their need for a Savior. But the moral person tends to lose that awareness. They, they think they're beyond the activity or the influence of Satan. You know, you got a you got a banker, or you got a, a, a somebody who's who's high up in society, and they're they're a moral person, they're a clean person, they're an ethical person, but they don't have Jesus. See, they don't they think well, all that that, I, I, that stuff can't bother me. I, I, Satan can't have anything to do with me. He'll never influence me. I'm beyond all that. I'm not I'm not over there in the in the in the dregs of society. I'm not down in the mud where Satan can get a hold of me. I'm beyond all that. Listen to what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 12, 45. Then it goes, it comes back, finds a moral person, but it finds a person who doesn't have Jesus. And watch what Jesus said. Then it goes, talking about the demon, and it brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. The Greek word there, when the demons come back and they live in that person, the Greek word there is katoikio. It's the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians 3.17 where it says, where he prays that the Spirit of Christ may dwell in your hearts through love. It means to settle down and be comfortable. It means to settle down in a place where you're extremely at home. Now listen to me. You understand what that means? That means when demons come into a moral person, they're extremely comfortable there. They're right at home in the heart of a, of a moral person. They're very comfortable in that environment. And Jesus said spiritually, spiritually that person is worse off than when they started. Worse off than when they started. Listen to these words of Jesus, Matthew 23, 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. That means a convert. And when he is one to your moral code, to your religion, when you make him a moral, ethical person, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Why? Because he doesn't have Jesus. See, they, they, they were this immoral person. They had an awareness of their sin, of needing a Savior. And the Pharisees convinced them, come over here with us and clean up your life and get all moral and ethical and, and, now, and now you're okay with God. And Jesus said, now he's it's going to be twice as hard to win him back into heaven, to get him on the right road because now he thinks he's okay. See, morality is incredibly dangerous and as I said before, I like morality, guys. 
I'm not against more, more. Everybody with me? I want y'all to go ahead and say Derek don't like morality. No, that's not that's not true. I like morality, but it's a morality that comes from the Spirit of God, in obedience to His Word, obedience to to His Spirit. See, this is why the church cannot preach morality in a vacuum without Jesus Christ. We are called to preach the gospel, not morals. That's what we're called to preach. John, uh, Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. Not the preaching of morals, not the preaching of ethics, not the preaching of standards, the preaching of the gospel. Listen, I am not interested at all in making people moral without Jesus. I'm not interested in that at all. In fact, Jesus said, you make them worse off than when they started if you do that. All we do is give them a false sense of security and actually increase their prospects for damnation. Look at 2 Peter 2, 20-21. This is Peter writing, and we'll close with this. He says, for, for, he says this, For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. See, Peter says you've got this group of people and they've escaped the pollutions of the world. You see, somebody invited them to church. And they came to church and they made some church friends. And they realized, man, these people, man, they live according to this moral code, right? I mean, they, they, don't, they don't drink, they don't smoke, they don't, they don't go with people that do. They, they you know, they, they, they try to watch their language. They, they try to be fair to everybody and not cheat and steal. And I, I like that. I'm going to be like that. And he starts hanging around with these people. And he, they reform themselves. They've escaped the pollutions of the world. Okay. See, through the knowledge, some people come, to, they come to the church and through the knowledge of Jesus and the knowledge of Christianity, they escape the world's pollutions. They reform themselves for a time. In other words, you ever, we say this all the time, they got religion. Don't we say that sometimes? What happened to him? Oh, he got religion. You see, they start living by a Christian moral code. But watch what Peter says. But they are again entangled in them and overcome the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. You see, morality, folks, without Jesus Christ, and, I, and I, I don't want to be crude here, but morality without Jesus Christ is a dog that will eventually go back to its own vomit. Listen, I don't, some of y'all got them little toy dogs, and, and y'all clean them up, and you put little bows in their hairs, and you paint their toenails, and you wash them, right? And, and you think, boy, that dog ain't like other dogs. And then one day you look over there and he's licking up its own vomit. I mean, again, I don't, I don't want to be crude about this. But, the, but listen, a dog is a dog. I don't care how you pretty him up. I don't care how you paint him up. A dog is a dog is a dog. He'll still go back to his vomit because you have not changed its nature. The same thing with the sow. You can, can clean. I've got a couple pigs at home. And you can wash them pigs and clean them pigs. And it don't matter. You can paint their toenails, put lipstick on them, put a bow on them. And they're going to go right back over to that mud and, and wallow in it because that's what a pig is a pig is a pig. That's, that's what they do. See, guys, this is reformation. 
It's, it's not salvation. It's not redemption. It's not regeneration. That's why Jesus says you have to be born again. That's why Paul says you have to be a new creation. You have to have your nature changed. You see, regeneration, salvation, uh, all of those things, redemption, they come not from reformation, not from changing yourself, not from cleaning up the outside, but they come from a relationship with Jesus Christ. The, the meaning of today's parable ends up being very simple. Morality without Jesus Christ is a spiritually empty house. It is reformation, not regeneration. And that is an incredibly dangerous place to be. Why? Because it leads people to trust in themselves instead of trusting in a Savior. And that, guys, is what in the end will end up condemning them to hell. I don't care how good you are. You're not good enough. For we have all sinned and come short of the glorious standard of God, which is perfection. I don't care how good you are, we all need a Savior. So I pray today as you come into church on this Easter Sunday, I don't care who you are, that you lift up your hands like that tax collector and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, because I need a Savior, you need a Savior, we all need a Savior. That's the lesson of this parable. Let's pray.